the text for today is 1 Timothy 5. It was originally 1 through 25, but 1 through 3. <laughs> Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give recognition to those widows who are really in need. So, uh, good to uh, have everybody back, and I don't know, uh, back from abroad, and school starting, and you know, football season starting, to safety and an interception, amazing, good stuff, and I don't know, I mean, starting some Cedar Ridge, and everybody's getting back, and back from, I don't know, all around the world. Anyway, it's awesome to have everybody here. Um, if you haven't been here, we're continuing our series on pastoral letters, so we're like right smack in the last kind of third of uh, First Timothy. And I don't know, like the basic shtick has been, just to, you know, uh, catch everybody up, is, uh, you know, we often read these letters as if they're kind of unconnected rules about church administration. Like, it's just a list of things that qualify an elder or that someone in the context of the church uh, has to do. A lot of talk of rebuking, a lot of talk about doctrine. And we kind of dug in on those words. It turns out rebuke is not quite what we think it is. It means to invite someone into a conversation in a way that uh, gets them to talk about and spin out the reasons for why they believe and then to kind of, I don't know, introduce them to what it is that Christ calls them to do. And doctrine is uh, not so much a series of rules or propositions. Doctrine is a way of, uh, uh, I don't know, thinking about what the ground <coughs> rules are in God's house. And so all these letters are basically about trying to figure out the best ways to not only build God's kingdom, but God's house. And it turns out that the answer that, you know, both Titus and Timothy give, uh, besides the kind of legalism that we often ascribe to them, is that we need to put the mystery of Christ at the center of everything that we do. That uh, because Christ has died and risen and been incarnate and given us the world and grace, the fundamental disposition that we ought to have, the thing that is our guiding principle, the one thing that Timothy says that if you do it, you will be a successful leader of and minister in the gospel is thankfulness. Being thankful for the mystery of Christ. So I, I don't know, uh, this is kind of the same issue as I, 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 I deciduously avoided preaching the pastoral letters if you can't. <laughs> I hadn't done it. Uh, it's all the self-condemnation. No, it's uh, uh, because... Uh, I don't know, I had a, a, a vision of them that, uh, that they were these kind of big lists of rules, and it turns out for, I don't know, like two weeks in a row, I thought I was going to do a full chapter and didn't work out. So, first three verses today, uh, and the goal here is to talk about the big whys behind the rest of the stuff in the chapter about widows and slaves and oldsters. So, I don't know, this letter is like a tale of two houses, maybe more. There's the Caesar's house and God's house. I mean, both the church and the empire claimed to be a house. Both of them had some pretty firm takes on what it meant to be a family. And uh, both of them have a set of expectations for how people act as a member of a family in that house. And I don't know, like, uh, there's a lot of other things going on here that'll come into a little more... Uh, focus next week, maybe, like, um, I don't know, there's some kind of talking to the Gnostics here. The Gnostics had a vision of the family, to quote Admiral Akbar, that it was 
It was a trap. It was a way to kind of dig us into the physical world more deeply. There was, as we talked about a while back, this kind of moral panic around the, what, they, what are the scholars called the new Roman wife who was empowered and was out and about and spending money and, I don't know, doing other things. And those things were kind of big for the folks in the context. It in part explains why so much of the letter is about regulating behavior, etc. But, you know, the root of this is there's these two houses. The two houses have two visions of what the family's supposed to be, different visions of what it means ethically to be in a family. And the kind of goal is to contrast the house of Caesar with the house of God. And to, I don't know, family values, right? It's something that uh, we'll hear a lot about in the next uh, couple of election cycles, I imagine, one way or another. It's something that is important to us, and it's uh, important to the Romans. It's important to the church, but in in, in totally different ways. I don't know. So these are letters that uh, see the household as the kind of primary metaphor for and backdrop for the advice that they're giving. And in fact, uh, God's household is the opening theme for the main topic center uh, sentence in the letter. So when uh, Paul starts out and says to Timothy in chapter 1, we looked at it a while back, when he says what Timothy's purpose in Ephesus is, he says that pretty clearly it's to change teaching and doctrine. I don't know, we can just go right to it, verse 3. Paul asked Timothy to stay here in Ephesus so that you command certain people not to teach false doctrines, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. But the word for advancing God's work is, and it's a word we've talked about a bunch, oikonomia. It's our root word for economy, and it means like the management and stewardship of God's household. So like as we've been reading and seeing, the point of these letters is to think about what we are like together as a family in God's house. So I don't know, in chapter 5, what we're looking at today, there's a bunch of talk about what the obligations are for a member of God's household to folks who need help, to folks who are on the outside, to folks who are in difficult situations, to folks who uh, would have been socially marginal. And there's particular concern for elderly people, for widows, and for slaves. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail next week. But I don't know, the thing I wanted to kind of, and the reason why we're focusing on a very small fragment of it this week is I want you to really think about how revolutionary those three verses are to the folks who would have heard that letter. I want you to really think about what it means to think about not only God's house versus Caesar's house, but to think about the members of God's house as a family together. And my sense is like, they kind of, I don't know, the justification for it for me was like, there's two things that make it hard for us to hear this family metaphor in the same way that the audience did. So the first thing that makes it hard is there's this historical shift in our thinking about the family. And honestly, you know, don't tell anybody I said it, but it's largely driven by the Christian faith. Like we are comfortable with the idea that every person is made in the image of God and is, I don't know, invested with an inalienable dignity that comes from the fact they're human, that comes from the fact that they are made in the image of God. And even our kind of secular thinking about government and about ethics is derived from that principle that every person matters. Now, the folks in this audience did not think that every person matters. It was a new idea for them. And, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, there's, the, 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 the people in this audience would have 
I don't know, uh, that they would have had an obligation to give a, and I have in brackets here, insert appropriate off-color language, about elderly people, about slaves, about people who are outside of their uh, family. That was a weird idea to them. Other people who were outside of the bounds of the family didn't count in the same way for them that they do for us. So to say you should treat someone else like family was a big deal. It says they count. It says they matter. But the second thing is, we have a kind of more expansive vision of the idea of family. So I don't know, like, like so many things, the Olive Garden ruined this one even more aggressively than it did pasta. What's the Olive, what's the Olive Garden slogan? When you're here, you're family. And I don't know, like corporation, yeah, yeah, Miles apparently is an Olive Garden partisan. Corporations, organizations, friends, even casual acquaintances will tell us these days that they love us, that we're like family to them. And we may not always realize the aspiration of one human family, but you you don't say without being embarrassed, well, heck, I don't care about them. They're from another family. But in the ancient world, you would have. In the ancient world, because there wasn't this first sense of every person having dignity, you didn't really have any reason to care about people who were beyond your family. And like outside the church, the folks in the ancient Mediterranean would have said, I don't know that person. They're not in my family. I don't have any obligation to them without blinking an eye. They would have found it profoundly weird to treat people who weren't in your family like family. Because as we've discussed so many times before, it is a blank culture, eh? an honor culture. And in an honor culture, the family is the basic thing that is the place where you ought to bring honor to and that you had to give honor to. And even the stuff that we think about that makes up who we are, like our citizenship or our occupation, even our race, religion, all those things, like for these people, it was filtered through the family. And it wasn't just like how you understood yourself. It was how you understood politics and society. So I don't know, like if, if, if you read people who talk about uh, the, the kind of social organization of a lot of the societies that we're talking about here, they would call them something like family or kinship warlord structures. That's what they were. You know, think about Herod, right? Like you have a guy who's got a family and an ethnic link to the people around him. There's a lot of folks who are armed that will support him. He's willing to work with the Romans. But for us, when we think about governance, I don't know, we think about like principles, we think about laws. But for the folks in this culture, they would have thought, about family. So like in an honor culture, family and particularly blood ruled the day. The boundaries of family are, I don't know, not quite as porous as they are at the Olive Garden. In or out of the family was a big deal. And there's not really a nice way, maybe the nicest way of saying it is if you were out of the family, you weren't an object of concern. So for us, hey, be nice to old men and widows and slaves, treat them like family, doesn't have the same jarring ring that it would have for the people who heard these letters. To us, it kind of seems like, I don't know, like minor politenesses that make strangers and life with strangers more bearable and the world less alienating. But to the folks who heard this letter, it would have been, and I searched for the technical term, and the best I could have come up with would have been nuts. I mean, more than that, like, it's, it's about so much more than politeness or being kind to strangers. It's, it's an argument that the church is a family all its own. It's an argument that we should see the bonds inside the church as every bit as significant as the bond that you might have with a brother or sister. That's why we call people, for example, brothers or sisters in, in, in the faith. And so, I don't know, when we focus on the rules in these letters, 
when we focus on the principles that they lay out, the hard thing for us to see is that behind those rules and principles is this eye-popping idea that people who were not related to you by blood should matter to you, that you had obligations to them, and in fact that you ought to think about what's going on with them and where they were and were they in a position where they were potentially vulnerable or were they in a position where they didn't have their needs met or were they in a position where they were locked out and not paid attention to. And it has all these strange implications for, I don't know, for how people would act. So like take old age. Old age was much weirder to the people who heard this letter than it is to us. A third of the kids died before they reached the age of five. Like a quarter of our population is over 60. It was estimated that it was like less than 5% of theirs. So interacting with old people would have been a, a, a strange and weird thing and saying that you would have interacted with old people in a way that you should treat them like a father or a mother would have kind of big a big deal. So when we read verse one, it seems straightforward to us. Do not rebuke an old guy in the community harshly, but exhort him. And the word there is parakaleo, which means to invite or appeal. Exhort, parakaleo him as if this old guy were your dad. And the same is true of younger men. Treat them like brothers. Of, of women, treat them like mothers and sisters and treat the younger ones with absolute purity here. And the point here in any instance where you're relating with someone in the church you should, and you had the opportunity to leverage a hierarchy or to assert family prerogative or to assert partiality or to show special favors or to, I don't know, uh, give yourself some benefit, you should instead think about that other person as if they were internal to your family and that gives you obligations towards them and a love towards them and there's a whole series of kind of ethical things towards them. And you know, even more importantly, there's one role that's missing on this list. What's the role that's missing on this list? Treat an old guy as if the old guy is a father, so if, as if you're your son. Treat uh, young women as if they are, are, are daughters or sisters. Uh, treat older women as if they are mothers. The one position that's missing is asking anyone to treat anyone as if they were their father. Now, that's significant. Why is it significant that asking anyone to treat anyone like their father is, is missing from the list? Why does it, why does it matter? Old, old men, the, uh, the, the folks who might have been given the advice to uh, act as if they were a father and uh, the, the, the kind of uh, first thing that verse one is about, old men would have been seen through the lens of, and I can't remember when we talked about this last, but the pedagogos, anybody remember the pedagogos? Yeah, the pedagogos was the guy who you basically hired if you were a rich imperial family to beat your kid so you didn't have to do it yourself. Right, so like this, it, the kind of vision of the salty old military veteran would have been the, I don't know, the big thing in the, in, in the, in the minds of the folks in the audience and the uh, idea that uh, uh, well, there's, there's more to kind of how they thought about uh, old men than just fatherhood, than just uh, the uh, pedagogos, than just those things. It, it was really something that was like tightly tied to how Romans saw the world. That's why it's interesting that it doesn't it suggest that anyone should act as if they are a father towards someone else. Women were mothers who took pride in their ability to birth soldiers for, and senators for Rome, and men might have uh, uh, raised sons to lead and to fight, but like Rome was completely obsessed with the power of the father. Rome was a culture that had an incredible investment in the family ideology that was organized around fatherhood. It, in many ways, it's really different from how we think about 
family. So you may have heard the old Roman term paterfamilias, especially if you watch Big Lebowski. The paterfamilias, the ruler of the family. What's that? Yeah, oh, is it Old Brother Warth? Oh, got my Coen Brothers movies wrong. But the idea is behind the Roman, it was a legal doctrine. The paterfamilias had certain kind of powers and his obligations were to advance the household and protect the family. But the powers of the paterfamilias were not just about, I don't know, like you ran, they ran the household and they told the slaves what to do. They obviously managed the economic affairs of the family, but slaves weren't the only property that the paterfamilias had legally. Who was the other property the paterfamilias had? The wife and kids. The Roman, in the Roman legal doctrine, wives and kids would have been property. And in fact, there's a, a famous story about the founder of the Republic, Junius Brutus, who uh, exercised his right as the paterfamilias, and this will make all the kids in the audience probably a little bit more thankful uh, for their dad, uh, the father had the right of life or death over the kid. And so if the kid was like really acting out, just like Junius Brutus, you, you had the right to execute your kid as a form of punishment. I mean, like the, the paterfamilias's scope and role was, uh, was one of ultimate power. And the Romans were intensely invested in this idea that all of society was organized around families and families were organized around fathers and fathers were kind of the thing that not only held all of society together, but, you know, that uh, made sure that there was stability and that things would continue and, 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 and et cetera. And I don't know, like, the Romans were intensely freaked out about the decline in the power of the father. It was something that they were very, very, very nervous about. And they were nervous about it in part because for Rome, it wasn't just that and we talked about this a little bit last week. When Augustus came into power, and this around the time that the letter was written, there was all these kind of worries about, you know, women were starting to, basically the Romans would have thought about it as act out of character or out of role or uh, finding new uh, freedoms and, and children were becoming disobedience. And so when Augustus comes into power, what does he do? He implements all these laws that say we're going to have tougher enforcement of, uh, of laws around the family, we're going to try and support our Roman fathers because Roman fathers were the kind of core of society. And the, 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 the idea worked both ways. The idea was not just that you needed strong fathers in order to have an organized society. The idea was Caesar was the father of the empire. And Caesar was the one who granted Roman fathers that kind of legal power. So, kids, if you were to question the power of your father or the prerogatives of your father, you were not just questioning your father, you were questioning Caesar. And the disobedience of kids and the kind of acting out of wives, all these things to the <coughs> Romans were this threat that had kind of eroded the power and responsibility of fathers, and that was an attack on the power and responsibility of Caesar. And so the point was, at least for all those kind of laws that Augustus and other folks after him tried to pass, they tried to kind of legislate the idea that you had to respect your father, that you had to love your father, that everybody had to act right because fathers and Caesars weren't that far off and because Caesar was the kind of father of the empire. And so you had to really, really, and the Roman virtue for it was pietas. Pietas was the idea that you had to love your father, your father had an obligation to protect you, and that was defined by the intimate bounds of the family. 
that's what the Romans were really freaked out about by the church too. Because the church says all of a sudden, hey, family is not defined by biology. What does Jesus say about the family? My family are those who are doing my father's will. And so when Paul or pseudo-Paul or whoever it is says to Timothy, hey, the model for the church, the model for the church is God's house, is that we ought to treat each other like family. And when he leaves the idea of the father off the list, what he's saying is that the kind of relationships inside a Christian community are about the relationship of submission to and love for and thankfulness for and are really about kind of leveling out the hierarchy that the Romans and Caesar and the paterfamilias would have. So the church was, I don't know, saying things that would have been very, very, very difficult for Roman society to hear and for the culture to hear. But it's more than just a question of authority. It's so much more than just a question of authority. It's so much more than that vision of the relationship between fathers and Caesar that, that kind of freaked the Romans out. Like the Roman vision of pietas, this idea that your love had to be intensely directed towards your family and that that's the thing that sustained the family and so you had to give honor and you had to give respect was really for the Romans a way of saying who counts. And their argument was that in a, house, a Roman household, the people that counted to you most were your family. But the church is saying, if God's house is a house, then everyone who is a member of that kingdom ought to, and is, it's, it is in fact an obligation for them, not to have pietas towards the people who they were blood related to, but instead to have a radical and open agopic love for everybody. And so think about what it would have meant for the church to be saying the things it did. That's the real dilemma here. How do you keep a family-based, largely authoritarian society together, one based in this kind of piety towards the family, if some long-haired hippie and his followers are running around telling you to love everyone just like they were your own mother or brother or sister? This isn't just about being nice or even being hospitable. This is about whether or not the early church could become a house defined by love. This is about the idea when you embrace the Christian vision of agape, it breaks up all our other social commitments. This is about the idea that when every person is made in the image of God and every person is a person for whom Jesus would have sacrificed himself, that when every person, because they're made in the image of God, is also offered redemption, this is a vision of a fundamentally different house from the house of Caesar, one that would have been radically disruptive, a house that is built on love and agape as the idea that pietas is not just about who we're related to, but is instead is about extending that vision to love to everybody. And as a result, asking the question that love has to ask, how do I best help this person? How am I connected to this person? And so next week we'll talk about the widow as like an example of, or to do it fancily, a paradigm for how we think about people who are just beyond the margins of society, but are nevertheless included in the church. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, says verse 3. This is a doozy. The word for proper recognition is timas, and it is the word for honor. It means something like, uh, it doesn't describe the objective value of something, it describes how you assign value to something. The word for widow is really interesting. The word for widow is keras. And it, is, it did mean widow. People would use this term keros to talk about widows. But it is a word that is derived from the feminine form of the word chasma, 
And that is the word that we get our word chasm from. So it means like a gap or a gulf or a wide space separating something. So this word would have been used for a woman whose husband died, but it was also used in other places for divorcees, for unmarried women, for women with slacker husbands, for women who were marginal generally. And like the translation that we have for today, uh, so the one uh, NRSV says, uh, give proper recognition to the, w- those widows who are really in need. Anybody else got a different translation for three? Honor widows who are really widows. Much better translation. Much better translation. See, there's this, this beautiful and powerful wordplay here. The NRSV version, uh, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. That's just a straight fabrication. The English translation that we looked at today is twice as long as the Greek sentence. The Greek sentence is four words long. Keras tima tas antos keras. Widows honor those who are truly widows. And there's this like powerful and beautiful and important wordplay here. I mean, the first use of widows in that sentence, keras tima tas antos keras, it probably is about the category widow. But the second one, I don't know, well, that's playing on the idea of a person who has a lack or a gap or a gulf or is separated or marginalized or doesn't have something. And that wordplay is like all the difference in this passage because it means instead of simply following the legal dictate for who's a widow or instead of simply following the legal obligations for who's a widow, because there were some protections for widows, the question is to direct ourselves towards honoring and loving people who were subject to a gap or a lack, or a difficulty, or something that prevented them from fully having their needs met. That's the new vision of family obligation that happens inside the church. Family is not defined by blood. Family is not defined by culture. Family is not defined by belonging. But just like Jesus says, whoever does my will is a member of my family. And therefore, the bond of love that we have with people and the bond of love that we have with family, the bond of love that we have, at least as the Romans thought about it, was kind of exclusive. It was my family or another family. But in the context of church, the vision of agape is one in which every person who believes in Jesus is included, is invited, is a person who is asked to be a member and to be extended uh, love to and to be uh, cared for and to be seen as being important. We're not supposed to ask the question who matters and who doesn't, but instead we say for every person who is a member of God's church that Jesus died for them because they are made in the image of God. And so we have obligations to the poor and to the downtrodden and to everyone that is on the other side of that chasm. The beauty of that word play is that it's a world play. It's a call for God's house to be different than Caesar's. It's a call for it to move beyond category thinking to something like the mechanics of love that seek the good of the other person, that receive them with thankfulness, that see them as a manifestation of God's grace to get us to put Jesus's love at the core of our hearts where Caesar's love used to lie. Amen. Questions or discussion?